Hey, it's Bill Simmons. I have some good news for you. The hottest take. It's back. Oh, yeah. Monday through Thursday, four times a week, you hear from me, Chris Ryan, Sean Fantasy, Mallory Rubin, Wazdeen Lambrey, Van Lathan, Julie Lippman, many other ringer staffers. You get one take, you got to defend it to the death. Sports takes, pop culture takes, food takes, airplane takes. Oh, yeah. It's coming back. First episode drops August 29th. This episode is brought to you by Hyundai. You're a powerhouse of a person balancing it all. Work, life, family, podcast. And your ride should be no different. The 2024 Hyundai Sonata Hybrid is a powerhouse of a sedan that meets all your needs. With the sleek front end, plus stylish interior, an available 12.3-inch digital instrument cluster, and seamless tech integration. Okay, Hyundai. Visit HyundaiUSA.com to learn more about the new 2024 Hyundai Sonata Hybrid. This episode is brought to you by UGG. Y'all know UGG is a brand that athletes wear all the time and the tunnel and on travel days. Well, I bet you think UGG season is only during the colder months of the year. Oh, contraire. You're wrong. You need to check out the latest spring drop from UGG. They have everything from sandals to clogs. I like the sandals. UGG has you covered for your next spring adventure. Shop the Golden Collection at UGG.com. All right, welcome back, everybody. This is Larry Wilmore. You're listening to Black on the Air. Of course. I hope it wasn't an accident. I hope you did it on purpose. And hoping everybody had a good summer. This is, you know, past Labor Day. We're officially in the fall season here. And man, we got a lot of great shows coming up. I'm so excited. Uh, we got the election season here. There's just a lot of stuff happening, you know. And, you know, we're hoping we're COVID's behind us. I know monkeypox is trying to chase us, but, you know, let's look in the rear view at <laughs> as many of those things as possible. We got to go forward, you guys. But in the meantime, we've got an amazing show today, and I'm very excited to have these guests on, uh, premiering on PBS on September 18th. The U.S. and the Holocaust is um, examines the U.S. inadequate response to Germany's Persecution of the Jews in World War II, a story that we thought we knew. But in the able hands of Kim Burns, Sarah Botstein, and Lynn Novak, uh, it is an amazing documentary. So please welcome to Black on the Air, Kim Burns and Sarah Botstein. Welcome to Black on the Air, you guys. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. It's such a pleasure to have you guys in the show and welcome you back, Ken. And congratulations, first of all. And I don't even know if I have the right descriptors. I'm, I'm speechless during so much of this. Uh, so congratulations on a job well done. Thank you. I don't, I've said this a million times, um, and Sarah is probably super bored of hearing it, but I don't think we'll work on a more important film. Maybe yeah. we've worked on others that have been as important. Yeah. We hope that films coming up will be as important, but nothing will be more important than this film, this subject, and the way in which we tend to think of the Holocaust as mm -hmm. something that happened over there, yeah. great tragedy of humanity, and yet the connection to the United States is an important thing to understand, good, bad, and otherwise. And it, it's important to include all of those things. It's really living history, right, Ken? I mean, it's <laughs> we like to think if it's in the past, but it isn't. Yeah. I mean, and you guys bring it so alive with, I mean, there's some things I think a lot of people did not know that they're going to become aware of some things they thought they knew that their minds, I think, are going to be sharpened and things will be clarified. What, what was the genesis of this, Sarah? How did this how did how did you guys uh, figure out this was going to be a project? Well, there are a couple of ways that we got to 
actually work, finally decide to work on this film in Ken Lynn and I with Jeff Ward, the incredible writer had worked yes. on a series on the second world war that it came out in 2007. And then Jeff and Ken did a big series on the Roosevelt's, not just Franklin, but Eleanor and Theodore as well. And then in 2015, actually, while we were all working on our Vietnam series, the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington, D.C. approached us about an exhibition that they were undertaking on the Americans and the Holocaust. And that mm -hmm. exhibition opened in 2018, which coincidentally is actually when we started shooting for this. But as soon as they mentioned it to us in 2015, we all looked at each other and for similar and different reasons, all just said, we need to do this film. We are going to add it to our schedule. We're going to make ourselves mm -hmm. into pretzels to figure out how to do it as quickly as possible. And I think we feel very fortunate to have been given the opportunity. I've always wondered, is there, is there a creative inciting incident as well? Like when I'm writing a script or comedy script, I'll get a joke idea, you know, or, you know, a quick story idea. Was there something that you saw in the making of those, whether it was the Roosevelt of the World War II, where you go, Oh, you know what? Th that thing right there, we <laughs> we need to do something on that. Well, was did you was there a moment like that? Yeah, a lot of moments actually. You know, mm -hmm. uh, World War II film and the Roosevelts each dealt with and treated the Holocaust, the World War II one uh, much more extensively. But what was interesting mm -hmm. is afterwards we were bombarded with people that we met along the way who mm. misinformation, had a lot of disinformation, had a lot of kind of conspiracy theories, had a lot of mm. assumptions and presumptions and conventional wisdom all of which they had wanted us to address about the Holocaust, not related to the larger arc and narratives of either World War II or the, the Roosevelt's. And there are things like, you know, FDR was an anti-Semite, right? Or right, right. why didn't you bomb the railroad lines to Auschwitz? And uh, why did Roosevelt turn away the St. Louis? Uh, and, and so we realized there were a whole set of questions that we needed to address about mm -hmm. what Americans knew and when they knew it. Um, what they did and what they didn't do and what they should have done. You know, in the end, we we brought in more people, about 225,000 refugees, more than any other sovereign nation. Mm -hmm. But we easily, the, the, the meager quota systems that had made it so hard for people trying to escape Europe to get into the United States and the anti-Semitism in the United States that was happy to, you know, keep upping the bar, moving the goalposts for them and adding more and more responsibilities to get that piece of paper that is the difference between life and death, literally, to a visa to the United States, um, we could have let in five times as many people and we didn't. And it isn't just on the boldface names. You can't just say, well, the executive could have done something. Mm -hmm. Roosevelt wasn't the king. He wasn't the Fuhrer. He couldn't just say that Johnson Reed Act of 1924 we're going to ignore it. We're going to bring in the St. Louis. We're going to let in lots of people. The Congress was opposed to it. But more important, you can look at this film and say it's the U.S. and the United States, uh, the U.S. and the Holocaust, but it's also us. And we all have a complicit mm -hmm. raging anti-Semitism combined with inherited inbred racism. You know, the treatment of indigenous uh, peoples, Hitler admired, thought we'd put them into concentration camps or exterminated mm -hmm. them. That was a good thing. The Germans, the Nazis studied our Jim Crow laws to fashion their less exclusionary laws against the Jews, right? At least initially. Mm -hmm. And so there's a whole sort of interrelationship. Let's make it clear. The United States is not responsible for the Holocaust in any way. Right. But to answer the fundamental question, did we rise to the occasion? Were we truly a nation of immigrants? Uh, could we have done more? The first two are no, we did not. No, we did not. 
And yes, we could have. Hmm. And you really take, that's, uh, that's so much to say about what you just said. I mean, there's so much in there, Ken. And I appreciate that you guys take the time early on to lay, give us some context, you know, the leading up to it, because I think a lot of people misunderstand the United States relationship to immigration historically. Mm-hmm. You know, people like to look at the Emma Lazarus poem and think this is a wide open country, you know, mm-hmm. give us your tempest tossed, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? and it was not quite like that. Right, Sarah? Thank you. That's an excellent question. And I think actually the central thesis intention of the film is actually that question. Mm-hmm. Are we a nation of immigrants, a land of refuge? Do we um, live up to the ideals of Emma Lazarus's amazing poem, or are we a much uh, more complicated and difficult and mm-hmm. nativist, xenophobic, anti-Semitic, racist country that has a long and varied history of turning people away and not being a land for refuge? And I, mm-hmm. you know, For me, as I was listening to Ken just now, when we decided to make the film, one of the aha moments for me personally was realizing that in 1945, after everything had happened and everyone knew everything and all the pictures and the newsreels and the march of time and the articles had everyone, there was indisputable what had happened. Americans didn't want to let in the refugees then either. Mm -hmm. So this is a, this is a, a long, story. And you're right. I don't think I certainly didn't know the history of in the early 20th century when we really did make it harder to get here for immigrants. And that Mm -hmm. started in the early 20s and the 1924 Immigration Act really set up this dynamic of quotas and making it hard to get here and the paperwork that Ken is talking about. Mm -hmm. And I think you need to understand that to then understand how America failed as Hitler is coming to power and before the, yeah. war, the war actually starts. And the side thing, and in addition to that, yeah. is that when we would go to the Germans in the 1930s before things got really horrible, mm-hmm. it was very clear that they were moving in that direction. And the United States would protest to the Germans at the treatment of the Jews. They would turn and say, Mississippi. Yes. yes. And they would say, consider uh. these people inferior. We have passed laws to do that. Look what you do. You consider right. black people inferior. You have yeah. laws to that. Please don't lecture us. And so in a, among the thousands of straws that break this camel's back is our inability, as it often happens, for us to speak to the world with mm-hmm. a moral authority because we can't practice what we preach at all. And it's so interesting how history, especially when you're able to look back, how things intertwined it on fortunate and interesting times were that Immigration Act that was signed, I think, in 1924, which let's describe that a little bit before the country was a little more wide open as long as you were coming from, you know, from, from as, as Trump would say, the non-shithole countries, right? <laughs> from 1870 yeah. to 1920, anybody who wanted to come here yes. could get here, regardless of where you're from, with the extension yeah. starting in the early 1880s of the Chinese. Yes, we had the Chinese they'd exclusion they'd been pretty successful right. on the West Coast with regard to the Transcontinental Railroad and right. farms. And so we didn't want anything to do. But Japan, okay. Africa, okay. You know, whatever. And not... Right voluntary people from Africa. So a lot of people pass through the gates, but there's this big worry. 
that the white Protestant majority is getting increasingly more anti-Semitic, increasingly anti-Black with a free Black, free in quotes, Black population. Mm-hmm. And, and they're wanting to close the door. There's the fear of replacement. The right? replacement theory first starts happening there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The Ku Klux Klan, which has had this revival at right after the Civil War, has its birth and, and sort of flourishing right after the Civil War, has this huge revival after World War I mm-hmm. because they've expanded their portfolio. We're not just anti-Black, we're anti-Catholic, and boy, are we anti-Jewish. And so you'll see the pictures of thousands of Klansmen on the steps of the Capitol marching mm-hmm. down Independence Avenue. This is a homegrown Al Qaeda or ISIS, and they're and they're now in the mainstream. They've been mainstream. Henry Ford is this virulent anti-Semitic who thinks Jews is are responsible for the assassination of and would would write about it in 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 his newsletter. Yeah. He took the worst anti-Semitic track. Yeah. A Russian hoax called crazy. The Calls of the Elders of Zion, bought yeah. a newspaper, the Dearborn Independent, and pre-printed this and, you know, said that there was an international Jewish com- uh, conspiracy. It had the second largest circulation of any newspaper in the country. And so you have overlay all of this, this inherited racism from having kidnapped Africans for free labor, having destroyed the Native American cultures and, and dispossessed them of their lands, of, of inheriting the worldwide millennia old uh, uh, anti-Semitism. And then you add to it this xenophobia. Let's not let anybody else in and change the racial makeup. You create an immigration law that favors only the Nordic nations, right? <laughs> That's what's interesting is that there's, it's not just, I don't want, here's what I want people to understand. These are the levels, Ken. It's not like it's easy for people to have in their minds. Oh, yeah. White people, black people, you know, or the, you know, Asians or these others. But you're making distinctions between. Oh, there's dirty white people. There's clean white people and there's dirty white people. Well, you know, know, Jews Jews were classified as (laughs) uncouth Asiatic. Yes. And you add all to this eugenics. Right. Yes. And that's a pseudoscience that is trying to prove scientifically distinctions between race. There's no distinctions. It's a complete fiction. The only race is the human race. There are no distinctions. You can't say even, as one historian says, breeds of dogs. Human beings aren't like, this is just all one huge human race. And when you begin to make distinctions, when you begin to other people, whether it's blacks or Jews Mm -hmm. or Chinese or whatever it may be, you're you're on the road to trouble. Then yeah. you had a worldwide economic depression where you don't want anybody else taking your job. You want to get a job. Exactly. Back. You want to put foot on the feet. You're suddenly susceptible to the authoritarian impulses. And so there's a moment where our film, as we're working on it, we begin to realize we started in 2015. It's a very different world than the one we're in, that we realize, as in all of our films, there's a kind of resonance with today. Whenever we finish film, we go, oh, my goodness, human beings are like Mark Twain's thing about history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. By the time we were finishing this film, it was rhyming in every sentence. And so Mm. Deborah Lipstadt, who's the great Holocaust scholar who's in our film, says, the time to stop a genocide is before it happens. Right. We would like to add and say the time to save a democracy is before it's lost. And so we accelerated the release of this film. It was supposed to be comfortably next year. And we have been working, you know, as as fast as we possibly can uh, to get it out this fall, because we think people need to understand yeah. what the seeds of authoritarianism. Let me just give you one thing. Sure. The not the Nazis had you know, they polled more than any other party, but they were nowhere near a majority. But mm-hmm. the conservatives 
put him and installed him in powers, thinking we can control this guy. In six months, he'll be squeaking from his own corner. He'll be in the corner squeaking and, and doing our bidding. And, you know, this is always the case. The lies and the misinformation, the, mm -hmm. the fomenting of violence and saying that it's the other side doing it. And therefore, the civil war is imminent. And so we have to consolidate the power and extend to the executive, in this case, the, 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 the chancery, um, the, the absolute powers of a dictator, of a Fuhrer. You, you know, you're just looking at a playbook, which you've seen happen. He used to travel around Germany talking about restoring Germany's greatness. He'd fly yeah. in his own plane. He'd go back to sleep at one of his <laughs> places. I know. It's crazy. And look, if he wanted to be in the greatest place, the most hippest place on earth in 1930, 31, 32, yeah, Berlin. great cinema, great architecture, yeah. great music, great painting, you know, unbelievable ideas, he would be Berlin. And then like a light switch, it wasn't. I was talking, um, you know, mentioning how uh, the intersection of things would when they passed that Immigration Act in the 20s, and I want people to get the context of it, because what it what they demanded then was all this extra paperwork and visas, and they made it harder for people, you know, to get across it, which is going to be important later. But at the same time that was happening, Hitler's writing Mein Kampf, you know, <laughs> like he's making his intentions. Like those things happened at like the same time in history. And it's fascinating how open his declarations, when you mentioned what about Mississippi and all that, and how people really didn't flinch because a lot of people kind of, you know, were like, well, he's not all entirely wrong. You know, that was how the anti-Semitism kind of played out everywhere in the world. Like, mm. uh, you know, I think we can't forget. And, you know, our film doesn't isn't a film about this, but just the long and very complicated history of anti-Semitism right. in Europe, let alone the long and complicated history of anti-Semitism here. So, yes, that was not a... Um, well, well, what did the Jews do? What did the Jews do? You know, well, like, Americans, you know, in the, right. in the mid to late 30s still thought that the Jews had brought in Germany yes. had brought a problem upon themselves. And one of, I think, the important things that we try to include in the film, uh, you know, is taking, uh, you know, polling was relatively new then or relatively accurate polling. And so mm -hmm. it's really interesting. Sarah cited at the end of the war, after you'd seen the horrible footage of the liberation of the concentration camps and the stacks of body and the pencil thin human beings, yeah. it's only 5% of Americans wanted to increase uh, the flow of refugees, which is just startling and ought to be shocking to uh, us all and a rebuke to, to those who believe in American exceptionalism and those who believe mm -hmm. that we are a moral force for good. We, you know, we really failed in lots of ways. We get a big F. There are lots of stories and the film is populated with, with mm -hmm. them of, of individual heroes and organizations mm -hmm. that came to the rescue. And even towards the end, the United States government and the war mm -hmm. refugee creating the most effective agency of saving the surviving Jews of Europe. But it's just this uh, heartbreaking tragedy, this mm -hmm. kind of slow motion train wreck. And people are seeing it. There's one Chicago uh, journalist, Ed Edgar Maurer, who mm -hmm. is writing in 1933 about how bad Hitler is. You know, he's only been in power since January. Yeah. And they finally, the Germans say, enough, you're out of here. They kick him out of the country. And as he's being escorted to the train station, um, the, his minder says, you know, when do you think you'll be back? And in 1930, Edgar Maurer says, with two million of my, my fellow countrymen. Mm. 
Like wow. it, it's the writings on the wall and Americans yeah. are beating the stories of the treatments of Jews. It's just, you got this big, huge thing, the depression, and you've got the anti-Semite yeah. of Charles Lindbergh. You've got Henry Ford saying this, you've got the radio priest, Father Coughlin, this Catholic virulently anti-Semitic person who has got mm -hmm. radio audience in the millions. And it, it's just, it sounds exactly like today. And, and people believe a big lie about Jews. And yeah. that's 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 a huge part of the story that has to be, you know, told. It's wonderful, too, how I love how you guys and you do this in so many of your docs where you take you don't just tell the macro story, but you take the personal stories. And I, th I feel like we learn so much more from those personal stories. And there's some extraordinary ones in this, because I, this is like I said, we feel like we've seen so much on this subject. It's like, well, what is Ken going to tell us that we haven't seen, you know? You know, mm -hmm. why is Sarah telling us this story? We've seen it. Oh, Guy Stern. Oh, I didn't know about this guy, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, right. I personally took a big gulp when, when we first started to say, oh my goodness, we're doing another film that has to do with the yeah. Holocaust because people do feel two things. One, I've seen a lot of films about the Holocaust. What is there possibly left to know? Why does that always get all the attention? Blah, blah, blah. And, you know, it's really dark yeah. and depressing. And who wants to watch six hours of that? And I think we made a film that looks at the Holocaust through the lens of the American experience, American politics, American culture, American life, American response, as Ken was just saying. And in order to understand the American response, you have to really understand the yeah. Holocaust. You have to really understand what happened. And a very successful way to do that is to make sure that the people who lived through it can tell their stories before they're mm. gone. And some of these events happened 80 years ago. Bobby Yar was 80 years ago. It's a long time ago that this, this history happened. So the first person witnesses that are make up, you know, the fabric of the film along with the scholars were children mm -hmm. during the time. And that certainly for me was new, was new to think about interviewing people in their eighties and nineties. Guy Stern is now a mm. hundred, um, who were children when these events mm -hmm. happened. So how does child memory inform how they think about their stories? And also now as a parent thinking about the choices that their parents made and um, they are the heart and soul of the film for us as filmmakers, right? Ken, the bottom up is the way to, to, to meet the top down. The mm -hmm. top down is that geopolitical aerial view. It tells you 6 million Jews were murdered, but what does that mean? Yeah. Abstract number. But if you can, as the writer Daniel Mendelssohn says in our film, particularize that, and he took six of those six million, six yeah. of his own relatives, his great uh, uncle and his aunt and their four daughters, and told you how they died and how they lived and, and what happened mm -hmm. to them, the particulars of it. If you take not just our witnesses, but the people that we identify, people who write heartbreaking letters that say, write to a friend, you know, I just want, knowing they're going to their death, I just want to know know yeah world to know that someone named david berger lived it's just mm -hmm. heartbreaking me what that does is it breaks apart the the sort of calcification that comes from the phrase six million it atomizes it and yeah. it says oh, it was a real person who had a life as rich as yours larry as rich as mine and and mm -hmm. and it is full of life that was snuffed out and then you begin to think about the potentiality of what we've missed all the things that they mm -hmm. didn't come and do Mm -hmm. or weren't able to do symphonies written, whatever it is, gardens tending, children raised, cures for diseases found. And then you've got a different kind of story. So while you're following 
And it was paradoxical for us that while we're following, we're adhering to this U.S. and the Holocaust, what we did, all that Sarah described so perfectly about American politics, American culture, American life, American beliefs, American problems, all of those things are contributing to the story that in order to tell that correctly and to breathe back and forth between Europe and us here, we had to actually see the Holocaust in a new light. So there's mm-hmm. kind of new, th- it's, it's sort of clearly um, delineated here that, you know, 2 million Jews are killed in what's called the Shoah by bullets. They're just killed, yeah. shot in the head and dumped into dinner. Yeah. And it's before anyone has said, hey, you know, gas might be easier, right? I mean, it's just horrific. Or, or the idea that by the time we've got an American boot on the ground in Europe, meaning Sicily or Italy, right? Three quarters of the Jews that are going to be killed have been killed. So then it, it goes back to us about why we spent so much time in the 30s sort of yeah. looking the other way and creating more obstacles and making it more difficult for human beings, including Anne Frank's family, to come mm-hmm. to the United States. They could have yeah. done it. They had the re- resources. They had the context. They were within the, the uh, parameters of the law and the quota, and they couldn't get in. Because there were people who were always kind of moving, changing the rules on them. Yeah, that's one thing that is that makes this film different, too, is, you know, most of the time we focus on hate, you know, and all that. But there's a focus on bureaucracy in here that's important. Yeah. Right. And, and how hatred can be expressed through bureaucracy, Yeah, you know, which is fascinating. And to tell us, I have a whole new take on Anne Frank and her family now that... I didn't think that could be possible. She could still be alive. I know. Right? She could be a writer or she could be anonymous, yeah. right? Maybe she never gets the diary, but she's writing to to kids in Iowa, pen pals, her sister mm-hmm. Margo and are writing to a family uh, in, in Iowa. They want to come to the United States. That's their dream. She She's listening to D-Day. She's, you know, Otto Frank is calibrating how close the 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 allies are getting. And then- they're on the last train to Auschwitz, the very last train to Auschwitz out of Westerbrook, which is a North German, very close to mm. Amsterdam uh, place of, of deportation to Auschwitz. That's just fascinating. And yet there's so much ironies too. And, and yet her death serves as a different lesson for people during that time as well. You know, it made the, you know, the whole uh, diary and all of that interesting, but it's so different now when you look at that, you know, and, the line that the woman has at the end about, you know, kind of taking, it says, I don't know if Anne Frank would say the same thing if she had lived. <laughs> she said when she didn't live, it's that hit me, guys. I'm still not okay after that line. This is the problem. We've made it. We've actually, most people, certainly most kids entry into the Holocaust mm-hmm. is not the difficult story of the Holocaust. It's Anne right. Frank whose yes. story is of, hiding there's there's still hope actually yeah 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 right but that diary stops the second the you know what hits the fan for her and her family when they're uh you know when they're hiding place then the the secret annex is is discovered and they're they're taken away and so she's writing about feeling with the impending the with the invasion and and the impending liberation of europe that that this is humanity's a a a, a pretty good thing but you know she's about to go to a place auschwitz that is you know and then shipped out of auschwitz when the russians start coming right Mm -hmm. it ends up back in germany in a in a concentration camp where she dies of disease that are ravaging Mm -hmm. 
camps. Um, it's just, it's heartbreaking and it's, it is ironic, but I think we have to sort of shed ourselves of some of these even romantic things about yeah. this, sentimental mm-hmm. things about it. Um, she's a really good writer. She's really mm-hmm. a fantastic writer for uh, a little kid. She's, she's, she gets it and she's wonderful. And it, it's not to take anything away from it, mm-hmm. but as her dear friend, Eva uh, Geiringer, you know, Eva Schloss says, mm-hmm. you know, I do not think she would write this positive stuff after she had been where she last was. Mm. Um, and we should say that, you know, there was, it's funny because there was sentiment in America in America at that time that's, I'm sure, certainly would have liked to help people or whatever, but you know, communication was different then, how information got out was different, who controlled the narrative of things. When you have people in the government who are anti-Semitic, they're thwarting things when there are people uh, mm-hmm. who are trying to do things. I thought it was really, really, really good of you guys to show FDR from this point of view. This is another thing that I think is going to be enlightening for people. And I think, you know, mm-hmm. probably Eleanor certainly played a part in this i'm guessing as well too and oh she's 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 just you know phenomenal she's yeah. so she's she's just um, she should be on currency i don't know why <laughs> roosevelt there's gonna be so many statues to that woman <laughs> one thing about her is is that she was right on absolutely everything except prohibition and you can give her a pass on that because her dad was a hopeless alcoholic and he died of the dementia and alcoholism disease Okay. If you're going to be wrong about something, prohibition is not a bad thing. You're a little girl <laughs> yeah. and, you, and you saw this horrible thing. Right. Of course, you'd want to do that. But everything else, she's ahead of the curtain. She is. She's ahead of her time. The idea that that some people can make FDR, because it's the boldface name, the villain of this. I mean, first yes. of all, the raving anti-Semites called it the Jew deal and called wow. him Frank D. Rosenfeld, right? Huh. Um, so- you can't have it both ways. And was he a politician? Yes. Was he reading the tea leaves of public support of which right. there was none? And so as the historian Peter Hayes says in our film, we look back and wonder now, why wasn't he more focused on the humanitarian thing? And he's out trying to, you know, revoke the neutrality acts. Well, if the neutrality acts hadn't been revoked, which he was able to do, and that's what he was concentrating on, we might all be speaking German, right? Yeah. I'm not kidding you. You know, we, Sarah's, our film about World War II, we interviewed a guy who was a Jew from Waterbury, Connecticut, who interviewed, was treating as a medic, a guy who had been like their equivalent of the State Department, the Foreign Service there, who had been trained to administer Waterbury, Connecticut in that central area of Connecticut. That was his mm-hmm. job. He knew everything about the topography, about the people, the towns and whatever. And his job when the Germans won the war was to, was to go and administer that part of Connecticut, and there were thousands of others for every other part of the country. This episode is brought to you by Hyundai. You're a powerhouse of a person balancing it all. Work, life, family, podcast. And your ride should be no different. The 2024 Hyundai Sonata Hybrid is a powerhouse of a sedan that meets all your needs. With the sleek front end, plus stylish interior, an available 12.3-inch digital instrument cluster, and seamless tech integration. Okay, Hyundai. Visit HyundaiUSA.com to learn more about the new 2024 Hyundai Sonata Hybrid. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. If you're busy like me and you're trying to catch your kids' games, it's important to have somewhere where you can go to find a good hotel. We're all over the place. Sometimes, you know, we're in Florida, we'll be in New York, we want to take the wife on a quick vacation and get away. Whether you're looking for a relaxing getaway or heading out of town to see the playoffs, 
Hotels.com app has a perfect hotel for every trip. Compare up to five hotels side by side so you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings without having to switch back and forth between options. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today. This episode is brought to you by Empower. You got money questions like, can I retire early? What are my best savings options? Can I afford to pay for my kid's education? Luckily, Empower has all the answers. With Empower's real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you get clarity on your real-life financial goals. So join 18 million Americans and Empower What's Next. Start today at Empower.com. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Sponsored by Empower, not an endorsement or a statement of satisfaction by a client. Let's talk about Lindbergh again, because we blew by him, but I think uh, people need to know Lindbergh's story a little bit more, too, because I think it's glossed over a lot. Lindbergh was, there have been few American heroes like Charles Lindbergh, who yeah. were mm-hmm. as popular as he, as he was at the time. I mean, I'm trying to compare him to somebody. I mean, he had the likability of a Tom Hanks and the popularity of a Michael Jackson, you know, it's like, you know, those types of things, right. you know, this all American hero did this thing that in his child was kidnapped in the early thirties. There couldn't have been more love for Charles Lindbergh from your average American, let's say, you know, that's right. And so if he's going to say something, this is how advertising works. Like, cause he's going to say buy a refrigerator. Who's not going to buy a refrigerator? Charles Lindbergh tells you to buy. Right. right. So this America first, you know, think for him to be an anti-Semite mm-hmm. and was not shy about it at all and got bolder mm-hmm. and bolder. It's fascinating to see people react to him in, in real time. How first it's kind of like, you know, not much of a reaction, but then it's kind of like, well, who is this guy exactly? Mm-hmm. Which contemporaneously I find fascinating because I wouldn't have thought that it was actually a revelation. Yeah. No, I mean, when he gives a speech in Des Moines, it's all over for him. It's like, yeah. You know, people go, wait a second, this is the voice of Charles Lindbergh, but it, but it's the words of Adolf Hitler and Goering and Himmler. And, um, and, and he just overstepped it. He overplayed the cards, but it is really, really true. I made a film on Jack Johnson. Yes. It's one of my favorites. Yeah. Uh, I was, I was promoting it on a, on a radio show and, and there was one guy, a drive time guy. He was clearly really pissed. And finally, I just said, what, what is it? He goes, well, I don't think you should make a film about Jack Johnson. He says, he's not a hero to me. And I said, okay, well, tell me who a hero is. And the guy goes, Lindbergh. And I said, oh, thank you. You know, in <laughs> Slam Home One, right. this guy is this celebrated aviator who travels nonstop from right. you know, Floyd Bennett Field to uh, uh, Le Bourget Airport outside of Paris in 33 and a third hours in 1927. It's this great thing. He's this the most celebrated American. And oh, by the way, he was a Nazi sympathizer. He was anti-Semitic. He ended up having two separate German families, unbeknownst to his beloved wife, Anne Morrow Lindbergh, with with children on part of it. And so you just say mm-hmm. the whole story of humanity is complicated. Yeah. Yes. It's undertow. It's that nobody is perfect. Is FDR perfect? No, he is not. No, of Do course not. The fire no. when he's not, you betcha. But we're not going to simplistically say, oh, he's the main reason why Jews didn't get to come to the United States. I think one of the things that's interesting in figuring out the archival material that we were going to use in the film, and we show this, are how many times he's on the front page of the paper with Roosevelt as in cartoons, in articles, he's as popular and he is um, using that popularity 
to encourage a country to be more isolationist, to be more nativist, to be more anti-Semitic and racist. And that's, um, that's a very, very real part of his legacy. See, that part is fascinating to me, too, because if all you are nativist, you'll have more people. Because there were a lot of people because of World War One, they didn't want to go into another war. We just had a great depression. Of course not. Why do we want to fight for people? And many of them were willfully ignorant about the things that happened. Well, I'm sure it's bad, but I got it bad here, you know? Right. So I think there's a tension, and we talk a lot about this in, in how the film is put together, that Roosevelt, to go back to him, is managing two things, as Ken was just saying. It's a a humanitarian crisis, which we as Americans know a lot more about than we like to think we know. There's a lot of reporting. It's very clear that the Jews are being persecuted and horrible things are happening. On the one hand, on the other hand, in order for Roosevelt to build a military power that could possibly take on what's happening, he has to revoke the neutrality act. He has to build a force. He has to think through his constituents, the Congress, the citizenry of the United States, what they're going to go fight a world war for and what will ban the country together. And, you know, he is careful to message, we have to defeat fascism. We have to be the beacon of democracy, but we're not going to mobilize everybody to save some Jews. Right, right, right. Yeah. Hey, okay, everybody, we're going to go save the Jews. Who's with me? Yeah. (laughs) Chirp, chirp, chirp. You know, again, to Ken's earlier point, one of the reasons we do do the Holocaust in the detail that we do is because for an American audience, I think even now, if you ask, people would say 6 million Jews died. If you dig a little deeper, my guess is a lot of them think they died in Germany Mm -hmm. and they died in concentration camps, Mm -hmm. as Ken was saying. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Three and a half million Jews who died, died on the Eastern Eastern Front in parts of Poland and Ukraine that now we're hearing about. But five years ago, no one had heard any of those places and any of those names. And they didn't have any possibility to get out. And that's the whole other part of the Holocaust, not just the Shoah by bullets, but where were those people, whole communities, whole strains of family were destroyed and gone forever, as Ken was saying earlier. And two thirds of the Jews in Germany and Austria were able to get out because they had a much bigger runway and a quota system that was going to help them get out in a way that was very different from the Eastern Front. So that's also important to understand that Jews are not a monolith. Europe is not a monolith. This is very complicated history that Roosevelt really does understand. Sarah, I want to repeat what you part of what you said, because this was another gut punch to me because I did not know this. And I like to think, yeah, I've read a lot about this. You know, I'm mm-hmm. I'm fascinated with history, in fact, you know, but the whole German philosophy of expansionism East, which. Yeah. You know, Hitler kind of fashioned after the American expansion West, West. you know, and <laughs> right. clearing out the indigenous people, putting them on reservations. You know, let's do that with the Jews. You know, let's expand East, which now it makes complete sense why he turned against Stalin so quickly, because I had never for the life of me could understand why would he he just signed that non-aggression pact with with Russia. Russia's his friend right now. Why are you messing with that? You know, right. Um, which was a huge blunder, no matter how you look at it. But I now can understand what Hitler's thinking is this is his West is the East. That's right. And the fact that so many Jews were just sitting slaughtered lambs in those 
places, had nowhere to go. And I had no idea because I, too, thought a lot of it happened in Poland, you know. But so much of it happened out there. I think people, please watch this to understand the different ways that this happened and the thinking behind it, you know. And they were truly trapped. They really had, there was no State Department line to go to. They didn't have relatives in America who could help them. I mean, they were truly trapped and they were totally wiped out. And the other thing is, this is what's fucked up. There really wasn't much we could do as a country in that situation. No, yes, that's why that what point. we could have done before, before. 19, before 1939, 1940, yes. that's when I think Ken was saying earlier, I think yes. that's the failure also to your point of the bureaucracy. Right. And, you know, the paperwork. I mean, Dorothy Thompson said the difference between life and death is a piece of paper. People like Dorothy Thompson. There's so many figures that I, you get to meet in here. Oh, so that's an important thing, uh, Larry, yeah. because I think that we don't want to suggest that it's all gloom and doom, that there are right. extraordinary Americans. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The writer, Varian Fry, who travels to southern France with $3,000 strapped to his leg and goes mm-hmm. out of a hotel in Marseille, he hires forgers, safe houses with a, a council, a, a waspy uh, vice yeah. council there in Marseille. They save extraordinary artists mm-hmm. uh, and, and or- so-called ordinary people. There's Wait Still Sharp. There's later on Raoul Wallenberg, who's underwritten by the Americans with the uh, War Refugee Board. There are more, I think... The real unsung heroes are the anonymous organizations, all of these. We call them NGOs now, but the Mm -hmm. American Immigrant Aid Society, the American Jewish Joint Distribution Committee, the YMCA, right? Mm -hmm. The the, uh, Unitarian Service Committee, the Friends. I mean, these are people who sacrificed, gave their money, gave their time, gave their lives to try to get other human beings out. And so there is an impulse in the United States that is, when Sarah was describing either, you know, the, the big question. Are we the nation of immigrants? Are we what um, Emma mm-hmm. Lazarus wrote mm-hmm. and was inscribed on the thing? Or are we Thomas Bailey Aldrich, then the editor of the Atlantic's thing, saying, mm-hmm. white goddess, mm-hmm. is, it, is it wise to leave the gates unguarded, letting in all these foreign tongues and ugly people and all of this uh, Tower of Babel that, that they were worried about? And the fact, the answer is always both, right? And the question mm-hmm. is to me in the most simplistic way, if you've seen It's a Wonderful Life is, you know, for Americans, where do you want to live? Do you want to live in Bedford Falls or you want to live in Potterville, right? Mm-hmm. Because Potterville doesn't care about anybody else. It's out for their, right. it's the art of the steel. It, you know, yeah. it's, it's all of that stuff. And Bedford Falls understands an, an, an interrelationship between all human beings and, and, and crossing borders. It doesn't mean you can't be proudly an American. And all of these heroes in the film are exactly that. And, but they yeah. understood the situation, whether they're journalists mm-hmm. like Dorothy Thompson or Edgar Maurer, or they're, you know, somebody, a, a minister from a church in Wellesley, Massachusetts, who's rescuing people and pulling them over the Pyrenees to get them to Spain and then to Portugal and then to the United States. It's, it's mm-hmm. just, it's populated with, with our better side, our best selves, as well as being, unfortunately, a rogues gallery of our worst self. Yes, and people should know that, that humanity cuts both ways, you know, that um, it is possible, you know, to accept that both of those things can exist in the same place (laughs) at the same time. My brother Wynton Marsalis said that in jazz. He said, he said to us, and it blew our minds and it still blows our minds. He said, sometimes a thing and the opposite of a thing are true at the same time. 
I and, know. And if you can do that, you can play jazz if you're a musician. Good luck. <laughs> you can be married. You can raise children. Yeah. You can have yeah. real relationships. You can understand yeah. history. You can understand our present moment. If you can tolerate undertow and contradiction. Which is why I bring up Lindbergh, because it is fascinating. Yeah. And you think about where the country was and, you know, and the fact that the more anti-Semitic he gets, the more unpopular he gets to me, that is a good thing. You know, I, I have a sunny takeaway from that. I'm encouraged by yes, that, you know, know, that that there were people that saw through that even. And I'm sure there were people that didn't think maybe not even that highly of Jews, but even thought that was wrong. Yeah. You know, That's a- like there is a point that I think decent people who aren't necessarily heroic. You don't have to be heroic to be decent. Right. You know, there, there's a line yes. that hopefully they will not let you cross. It's when decent people let that line be crossed, which I think happened so early in Germany. That's right. You know, where decent people let that line mm-hmm. get crossed and then there's no coming back. Then the decent people, nobody cares about you anymore. <laughs> you know, like the, people sometimes get turned into killers. I mean, we point. have to yeah, populate yeah. our film as as minimally as possible with the evidence of what they did in the show by bullets, the the yeah. movies they took and the snapshots they took their murder, their outright murder. And bring your son to watch. And bring your son to watch. And you're you're not murdering, you know, Jewish men. You're ju- murdering Jewish women and little babies too. That's another thing, by the way. The the children. They're showing that no. This is not just killing of men in this women, children, and the callous way in which this was carried out is another atrocity that also is not talked about enough. And, and how can people do that? Can, I don't understand that, Sarah, how, like, even if you say, well, this is not a person, this is an animal, you wouldn't do that to an animal. <laughs> like, like you have to think that it's something else. Like it's a piece of cardboard or something that the person is even isn't even alive. I don't even know how the brain can do that. Right. It's the othering. It's the dehumanization. And also, as Ken mentioned earlier, as they change from the tactic of just shooting people point blank and burying them in ditches, they move toward gas, not because it's easier for the people who are dying, but because it's easier for the people who are killing them. Why do you think it's uh, still difficult for some people to understand how hostile environments make it possible for things like the Holocaust to happen. Yeah, that's, that's it. I mean, Daniel Mendelssohn in our film says there's no bottom to the depravity that human mm-hmm. capable and of inflicting on one another. And so we just somehow have to understand that the, the key here, I mean, we can, we can speak, you know, endlessly, the Confederate army is still up and running, right? And the Confederate mm-hmm. army was not the people who owned slaves. Right. Mm-hmm. Confederate Army was the people that the people who owned slaves got to do their business. And they've been able mm-hmm. to, for more than 150 years, continue to tell them that their enemy is not us who have mm-hmm. sl- sent you to the slaughter and have kept you down and uneducated and on drugs or opioids or whatever. But it's that black guy. He's the guy who's, who's, who's taking your job, who's taking your woman. And so we've spent all of that energy and this kind of dehumanization uh, of the other when there's no difference, you know, mm-hmm. and the power structure fears more than anything else that all of those people get together and compare notes and say, wait a second, you're not my enemy. You know, mm-hmm. you're not my enemy. You're not influencing my life. You're not affecting my life to the negative. It's the people that I pretend to be aware of. And so the shame about, there was a level of shame about Lindbergh, just as there was, you know, 15 years later with Joe McCarthy. Today, though, 
you can't shame anybody. I know. Shamelessness. What, and that's the tactic of authoritarianism too, is that you just keep saying mm-hmm. ever more increasingly outrageous things. And if you get away with it, then the next time you can double down on it or triple down on it. Guys, there seems to be an urgency in this film as well, too, not a casual look back. And I want to make sure people are clear about that. So is embedded in that urgency, do you, are you guys afraid that we're at one of those points right now where these types of things can happen again, Sarah? Well, I think uh, for me, I will say the process of making the film and watching what has happened to this country since 2015 has been shocking and devastating and very frightening and rhetoric and ways of behaving that were always on the fringe and thought by a citizenry of not okay seem to now be okay. Lynn has talked a lot about that. Ken has talked a lot about that recently in interviews about the film is just in our lifetime. I'm 50. She's 60. Ken is 70. Our writer is 80. The, the rhetoric of hatred, the bigotry, the, um, popularity and acceptance of those forms of expression have been on the rise, not only here, but around the world. And that is very, mm-hmm. very frightening. And I think, you know, we make the point at the end of the film that as Ken was saying earlier, democracies crumble very, very quickly. Freedom collapses quickly. People who are disenfranchised and frightened will often go toward an authoritarian fascist regime because for whatever hopelessness is in their life. And I think for me, the pushback and the takeaway, even in my little personal life, is to be much more involved on the local level in my community. I now make sure I never miss a local school board election. I want to know why are they debating what books my kids can read? Why are we in a place in 2022 where having a nuanced, thoughtful, complicated look back at our history to inform where we are is not okay? No, shame is not a useful and constructive way to teach interest in as you're all the questions you're asking us today how do we think about our past to think how to have a brighter and better future for our children is how to think about mm-hmm. it right learn from the past deborah lipstadt yeah. says where did we go wrong how can we do better the best next time isn't that why you get up in the morning and have children i mean that's the optimistic thing to do so i'm shocked in you know every time i see how few people in our country vote and i think that is mm. the way to push back against some of this as as simple as it sounds i agree with you any things that surprised you guys about any of this Uh, it's so funny a lot of times documentaries are about the filmmaker having a point of view and telling you sure right and that's a perfectly legitimate thing in the case of history it's terrible because it means you're basically telling them there's a test next tuesday Right. We'd rather share with you the process of discovery. And that makes it a kind of joint and sympathetic and, and collaborative, uh, work with the audience. You feel like you're talking to you specifically, Larry, or you feel like I'm speaking or Sarah's mm-hmm. speaking to you just as we are doing right now. Uh, but for us, it's as steep a learning curve practically is for anybody else. Thousands of things. Sometimes they're really minute, like Edgar Maurer's response to the German who's kicking him out of the country. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's just the sheer magnitude of the 
of the brutality and the organization and the bureaucracy of it. And then sometimes there's a little light. There's a bureaucrat, not at State Department, who are several people are implacably anti-Semitic, but there's a really good guy over in, in Treasury. And he's trying to get the word out. And he's trying to start something that will free up U.S. funds that aren't permitted to be used in war zones where they could fall into the hands of the enemy to go and do something the United States doesn't allow, bribe officials, hire forgers. And so suddenly it gets approved by his boss, the Jew in the cabinet, uh, Morgenthau, Henry Morgenthau, and Roosevelt approves it. The State Department slow walks it. And finally they say, stop, and they get it going. And when Raoul Wallenberg celebrated for saving perhaps 120,000 human beings in Hungary and Romania, um, is a Swedish diplomat, he saw himself as carrying out an American program. He was certainly funded by us. Mm -hmm. And that's that's the good guy part of it. That's the yeah. that's the cavalry coming around to come to the rescue. Uh, and it's just, it's an interesting, it, 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 it's a very complicated story. And we did not yeah. know all of the intricacies, all of the ins and the outs, all of the of the nuances of it. It's it's mm -hmm. been it, it, it's been just a, it's been a labor of love and a, just a heartbreaking exercise. Right. And also, I think, important to make sure that people understand how brave and dignified the Jews who were being persecuted were. I, my great uncle left Switzerland and went into the ghetto to be part of the Warsaw Uprising because he did not want to. He wanted to take a stand. And there were there are lots of stories like that, too. So I think it's important. He's no longer with us. Right. So I think that's also, you know, this kind of helpless, hapless victimhood of six million. I think I think um, dignity and agency, I find the images um, somehow sometimes most moving because of the dignity and bravery that those Jews expressed to the camera as they were about to die. And I think that's an important point for viewers to think about. I uh, couldn't agree more. Um, I push back at those um, definitions of. Why didn't they do more? How come they didn't fight back? It's like, you have no idea what the people did and what they were up against. You know, it's mm -hmm. like, please don't say those things. Mm -hmm. Guys, this, this has, this is, uh, uh, you know, I'm a fan of all of your work. Um, this and, you know, I think the Vietnam have really, I'm just in tears as I'm like talking about this. Um, I think people need to, they need to watch this because, you know, these things have been mythologized. They've been missed. They've been underreported and they've been overreported. And since people get numb to it, you have to know what really happened, you know, and these stories that, especially these stories that we don't know that much about are just fascinating and so important. And just thank you so much for making this. Thank you. Now's the time for all good people to come to the aid of their country. I mean, we can't sit by. There's no luxury mm -hmm. of passivity right now. There's just, you know, the the urgent. This story tells us of how susceptible, as Sarah said so beautifully, about the susceptibility of democratic institutions to autocratic overtake. It's, they fall easily. They're much harder to restore. And as I said earlier, the time to time to save a democracy is before it's lost. I agree. September 18th, I think, is when it uh, airs on PBS. Um, it's a three-part series, you guys. The U.S. and the Holocaust. I agree with you. Us and the Holocaust, I think, is just as legitimate 
a title. It's so great speaking with the both of you. Thank you for all the incredible work you do and the way you make us think about things differently too. I just yeah. need to say that because we are big fans oh. and you do rearrange our molecules as well. So just it's <laughs> a privilege to meet you. So thank you. Oh, Sarah, very kind. It's uh, the honor's all mine of meeting you guys. Keep doing the work. And uh, and thanks again, Kim, for Ali. <laughs> you know, that's my boy. That one. Oh, that's uh, such a good movie. Like a butterfly sting uh, like a bee. I know. It's great. September 18th, you guys, on PBS. Uh, Sarah and Kim, thank you. Thanks again. Thank you, Larry. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. If you're busy like me and you're trying to catch your kids' games, it's important to have somewhere where you can go to find a good hotel. We're all over the place. Sometimes, you know, we're in Florida, we'll be in New York, we want to take the wife on a quick vacation and get away. Whether you're looking for a relaxing getaway or heading out of town to see the playoffs, Hotels.com app has a perfect hotel for every trip. Compare up to five hotels side by side so you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings without having to switch back and forth between options. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today.